Hey, Mike, you're a little bit quieter than Rob. Are you not speaking into the microphone directly? Let's or? check. No, and that's strange because I'm especially. I feel like I'm especially loud today. Rob is especially loud. How is that? How's that? Rob is still louder. Are, are you fiddling with knobs? I, I do. I fiddled Ooh, with. Ooh, that's good. Rob, is that better? Yeah, Mike sounds much better now. That was me talking. I know, but Mike, talk. <laughs> you do know the difference between our voices, yeah. right? Mm, not really. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. Real quick, before I forget, two things. One, this needs to be in the podcast. Big shout out to Pender, Nebraska. Mm. All right. It's the spiritual center of the United States. <laughs> and I need all of our listeners. This is important. I've literally never felt so strongly about anything on the podcast. Is that when you hear of anything in Nebraska, so if someone says, oh, I'm from Grand Island or I'm from Omaha, you need to respond, where is that in relation to Pender? <laughs> All right. P-E-N-D-E-R? P-E-N-D-E-R, Spiritual Center of the United States. Yep. Um, second thing, and this doesn't have to be in the podcast, that I will literally quit the podcast <laughs> if that is not in there. <laughs> Um, and second thing is I just realized we're up for this, uh, very prestigious award, uh, for best Catholic podcast, but we're not a Catholic podcast. Mm -hmm. Is this going against our roots? Should we recuse ourselves from the award? I, maybe, (laughs) maybe pull a Bob Dylan (laughs) who got the Nobel prize for literature and like, isn't returning their phone calls. I think it's similar. He did return their phone call finally, finally. or at least make some type of statement. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I would. I would do it, but I'll accept it. Yeah, it I, would, don't, I. I. You know what, though, I need it. It doesn't. It's not even a done deal that we'll win it. Although we're ahead in the polls, but yeah, I think as, that we, the, as we've learned this year, the polls mean nothing. Look. Look, if I wasn't personally Catholic, I'm not saying that the podcast is Catholic, but if if we weren't personally Christians then I would say we freaking reject that thing for putting us on the Catholic Podcast Award nominees. I mean, we're the greatest podcast for sure. Sure. But Catholic? No. So if it wasn't uncharitable Mm -hmm. to To accept it, it, yeah. Totally turn that thing down. Like this Catholic marketing agency is trying to give us an award and we're like, (laughs) just dump on it. (laughs) If that wasn't a legitimately uncharitable thing, I I would say we'd do it. But I think it actually would be uncharitable. Probably would. All right, put the Pender thing in the podcast. Pender? Pender, Nebraska. What? What's? Um, of course, it's significant, but remind me why it is. Uh, don't worry about it. Right. Yeah, the person that needs to know will understand. We'll know. Oh, yep. this is one of these like the anchor man tugs his earlobe to tell his daughter that he loves him, loves her, kind of thing. Like you, you're not going to actually say it. This is just a. Don't worry about it. This is an Don't encoded message to someone. This is an encoded message to okay. one person. And they know what I'm talking about. Right. Oh, they know. Mm-hmm. They certainly know. Mm-hmm. Well, so uh, I, t- I tweeted out this article from First Things. Uh, or do you guys have... Oh, anything? dude, I saw that. Did you read it? 
No, no, that was a lie. <laughs> I, I don't check Twitter thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, man. Well, it was a First Things article. It was on their blog called Mr. Bossy. Recommended reading. It's just a little short story about this guy's uh, a memory from his childhood when he was in... I can't remember exactly, but it feels like a middle school story. And uh, they had this teacher, Mr. Bossy, which was literally his name. And he was just in a, kind of a grouchy science teacher that, you know, kids sort of took advantage of and would do the drop the textbook pranks and a lot of stuff just to disrupt class. You know, you're that age where you think everything is hilarious. Been there. And uh, Still there. He was, yeah, right. He was uh, one of those good kids whose parents, you know, taught him to respect their elders and um, do well in school and stuff. Like he, he had that background, but was of that age where he's like trying to fit in and trying to be cool. And uh, one day in class, so the teacher had a wooden leg. Did I say that already? No. How can you leave out that detail? That's yeah, an important detail, especially. He for has the a peg yeah. leg. Not a peg leg, but... You didn't even imply that, man. Like, we (laughs) had no idea that was coming. I mean, that explains all of Mr. Grouchy, or Mr. Bossy. Right. So, he has a wooden leg, and that's uh, something that the kids... They don't really ask about or make... You know, but they kind of, like, make fun of behind his back and stuff like that. He's limping around on this wooden leg. In any case... um. At one point in class, there's like one of these lulls where it's like, go to page 34 in your textbook kind of thing, and everybody's flipping their books, and, and he blurts out, this kid, he goes, hey, Mr. Bossy, do you keep your socks up with thumbtacks? Because of the wooden leg situation. It, and the context does help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so he makes this kind of cruel That's a terrible joke. thing to say. It is. And, uh, and people kind of snicker. Uh, but a lot of them are just sort of, especially the girls are just kind of uncomfortable. Like, did he really just say that? And he said immediately he was he was ashamed of himself and embarrassed. And uh, the teacher just looks up to see who said it, looks right at him, and then turns back down to his textbook and says, okay, we're talking about cellular respiration today or whatever, you know, some science topic. And he said the rest of the uh, class, even though his buddies were like, you know, nudging him and being like, hey, good one, you know. He just felt like an inch tall, wanted to get out of there. He said his face literally felt like it was burning. He was so flushed and ashamed of himself for being so cruel and disrespectful that when class was over, he just ran out of the classroom. And uh, it was the last class of the day. He goes goes home, you know, says hi to his mom, drops his backpack, and he just goes right out to the driveway and shoots basketball hoops uh until dinner time but there was some line in it and i don't have it in front of me but i preached about this in my english homily yesterday he said like it was the first time in my entire life that i realized that sin was real that sin was foul that it was not some theological idea but some cruelty resident in every human heart that has to be fought till the day you die and i thought to myself of uh, saint augustine's pair stealing story from the confessions you know that one yeah yeah so he has a similarly dramatic statement about this sort of like mischievous adolescent crime of stealing pears when they didn't even want the pears and they just threw them in the river right but he was like going along with the crowd 
and just doing it because for no reason he said i i would fall i fell into my shame for the sake of shame like i i just loved wickedness and evil and was like falling into the abyss and um wait maybe i don't know that story were they was he just with friends or something and they stole pears? yeah he was a teenager and they like you know went to some guy's yard who had a pear tree and just took all the pears and weren't even hungry didn't even want pears so they just threw them away they just stole for the sake of stealing because okay. It, because it was a it's like a Dostoevsky novel. You just do it for the sake of breaking the law. Yeah. To see if you can. And he was so disgusted with himself. You know, Augustine was kind of pessimistic about human nature. Um, but I thought of like this in relation to the Zacchaeus story. That's what I kind of related it to in the um, homily. Was like we don't know anything about this Zacchaeus guy except that he was short and that he was hated by basically everyone because he stole their money and i wondered like what his childhood was like or or just like maybe the first time he went to some farmer's house who had been working all spring summer and fall to like harvest this uh you know living out of the sweat of his brow and the earth and this short little rotund danny devito looking tax collector comes up to his house and it's just like yeah, I'll take half your stuff, please. And, you know, just gets rich off of everybody else's. Like, what that must have felt like to endure the guy's hateful stare, you know? And just that that idea of shame and, like, the way out of it. I was thinking of the kid shooting basketball hoops or Augustine, uh, sort of tormented in soul. And, like, Zacchaeus is obviously chafing because he wants to see Jesus. And then the moment that Jesus sort of like takes his shame onto himself is the moment the guy feels free to just kind of like completely take a new route. Do you know what I'm saying? Like there, I think that what I related to in all those stories was I know exactly what that feels like where you do something or you say something or, or you think something and you just like, Oh, you know, you just hate yourself you know, for whatever reason. Uh, and it feels like there's no way out. Like he didn't want to, he didn't ever want to look Mr. Bossy in the eye again. You know what I mean? But there has to be a way out of shame. And maybe I'm just rambling, but it feels like that story of Zacchaeus shows what it is to get out of the prison of sin, which is Jesus becomes sin. Like the whole, it's a microcosm of the entire gospel that Zacchaeus is up in a tree. Everyone's probably making fun of him and hates him. But the moment Jesus says, hey, I'm coming to your house, everybody starts criticizing and condemning Jesus. You know, what's this guy doing eating in the house of a tax collector? Yada, yada, yada. But the whole story of the gospel is like, we're up in the tree uh, being derided by others or ourselves because of our own insecurities or or whatever but jesus gets up on the tree of the cross and takes it all on himself and then we're like oh my gosh i can be free of this i I have another like my life doesn't have to continue to be wallowing in this shame thoughts (laughs) you know what i'm saying like do you have you guys had those experiences i i i can think of like half a dozen from when i was a kid 
of just feeling like, why did I do that? You know? And you, yeah, no, I can definitely, definitely think of, and I didn't have to harken back that far to, you know, adolescent days, but, um, yeah, no, I think that's, um, I mean, a good, like, it's seriously true exegesis of the Zacchaeus story. Uh, there's a ton of attractive elements to that story. And it was fun. I got to preach on it for um, homiletics. And it's just fun to look at a text from the perspective of preaching. Um, but all I have is is a story from when I was younger. But, you know, not really anything to add to that. Cause it, but it's certainly true. I mean, we talked about it before, like, when you're by yourself, you just spin your wheels in your misery and you kind of put yourself up a tree because you can't see and you want to be a part of the group and you know you're lacking something. So you get yourself stuck in a tree and uh, and then like, yeah, Jesus is the one who gets you down in a lot of ways. Um, yeah, I think that story, it lends to it's so human, like some little fat guy who, who does get stuck in a tree and even though it doesn't say he's fat, I do picture him as like a Danny DeVito. <laughs> I, I, I feel like that hits it on the head. Hopefully he's not so disgusting as Danny DeVito, but... Um, <laughs> oh, come on. Danny I DeVito's not that disgusting. Well, yeah. We'll agree to disagree on this one. <laughs> I do love him, though. Um, and just to think about him, like that short pudgy guy jumping around with joy and how how happy Jesus is about his conversion... Uh, I love those elements of it, but yeah, I don't have too much to add in the like theological intellectual. I don't know. Do you, Rob? I I like the point. Like yeah. I like the yeah. I like the parallel. Um, a well, lot. Well, put I it mean, this like, way. Go ahead. No, I just I I like the image. You kind of said it in passing at the end, but even even like the image of like he's up a tree and then Jesus literally is up on a tree on the cross. Like even those parallels, like that type of language is powerful um, for me, but I didn't like him. Yeah. What does that mean? Like when St. Paul says he became sin, who did not know sin, you know, like he, that to me is the, I don't know, I guess I was driving and a lot of this I'm getting from lanky guys. Another podcast I listen to sometimes for homily prep. You guys ever heard them? I've I heard, have. I've heard of them. Yeah, I yeah think they're I've very good. To them. Uh, it's a little bantery, which you know, men in glass houses don't throw stones, but um, they go really deep into the context of every scripture reading and stuff. But yeah, it's yeah, it's very good. Free to talk about free advertising, anyways. Um, Dang it! <laughs> so what I was thinking was like, wow, this this really does feel like one of those things that runs in and out of scriptures but particularly the gospels uh of this like why why does jesus not confront evil on evil's terms or why why doesn't he like at the crucifixion call down angels and like just house these dudes who are opposing god's will you know and uh i'm sure everybody in the crowd that day saw zacchaeus up in the tree and we're like, oh, finally, this is the chance. Like, Jesus is really going to give this guy hell because he's been so demanding. The Sermon on the Mount, he's talking about how, like, it's not enough not to kill your brother. Even to hate your brother is killing him in your heart. It's not enough not to commit adultery. Even even looking on a, 
another person with lust is committing adultery with them in your heart. Like this guy is so like um, demanding. You have to, your righteousness has to even surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees. Like he's going to look up at this guy who's been a tool of Rome, oppressing his own people, greedy, selfish, probably has a lot of other personal faults. And Jesus is going to tear him a new one. And what does Jesus do? He takes on that guy's shame himself. Like he does not address his moral failings or, you know, he just looks at him and he calls his name and he says, hey, I'm coming to your house. And immediately all of the derision and shame and condemnation is displaced onto Jesus off of Zacchaeus. And I thought that that's the story of salvation. Like, look, what if it were insert name of politician you hate, who you think the world would be better without, uh, is up in that tree. And everybody is just like, you know, like you maybe probably never even met this person, but you're sure the world would be better without them, you know, or it's somebody, you know, personally or whatever. And you're, you're in the crowd. Like what I get from that Mr. Bossy story is like, he took his insecurity, this kid, he was insecure, wanted to be liked, wanted to be cool, wanted to be seen as strong or clever or whatever. And so he uses the weakness or vulnerability of someone else to basically displace his own insecurity. You know what I mean? Like put him, try to put himself in a, in a more powerful place socially. And what ends up happening is like he feels so ashamed of himself. Um, and that is like the story of humanity, this this twisted solidarity we have by hating or like having a consensus of like this person or this group of people suck you know yeah and it it is interesting though because you like we would not say that jesus doesn't go after uh certain specific things obviously like the scribes and the pharisees he he gives it to him pretty heavily woe to you scribes and pharisees and like calls them out on very specific stuff and so it is interesting, like why he he never does that to a public sinner. He never ever does that. My he, feeling though is that it's because the, why was Zacchaeus up in the tree in the first place? Because there was something in him that was like, what I'm doing is not cool. You know, he didn't need Jesus to tell him like, you know, that stealing is wrong. <clears throat> oh darn it! I didn't even know that. I should stop stealing. You know, like he knew. He just needed a way out. He needed. He needed like the ability to save some face, you know, because I feel like when you get into the problem with shame, shame is a good thing because it tells you you weren't raised that way. That's not the way you act. That's not what human beings do. That's not how people treat each other. But the problem is like, if there's no way out of shame, if there's no like place to, to dump my shame so that I can be uh, free of it, then it's a story you tell yourself until you're just like, well, screw it. And that's when shamelessness comes in. You're just like, well, I'm I'm worthless. This is just who I am. I'm a robber. I'm a tax collector. This is just that everyone hates me and everyone always will. So what's the point of even trying? I might as well keep keep doing this. And that, like the moment that Zacchaeus feels like, whoa, here's here's an authentic way out. It's not like he, he admits his fault by implication by saying, I'm going to give away half my stuff and repay everything I've extorted four times over. He's repentant, but it wasn't like, it's like they said about St. Francis that he never, he never demanded anybody's moral reform. It was just by looking at the guy and seeing how he lived his life and how happy he was free of 
money and sex and all the goods of the world. And just, it was like, just seeing St. Francis was enough for a person to be, be like, wow, I am, I'm on the wrong road, you know, and people would convert or join his fraternity of friars. And I don't know, there's, I, I guess what, what struck me and I haven't really unpacked it is like the power of that, not just witness, but like personal engagement with a person, you know, um, can you see the humanity? I mean, like Jesus, who knows in his humanity what he knew about Zacchaeus, but I just imagine that Jesus like give gave Zacchaeus the benefit of the doubt that this kid was probably shrimpy when he was little. Everybody picked on him and he was looking for ways to assert himself and make himself feel good and powerful. And he just went down the wrong road. And now he he's sort of like given up on feeling good about himself. Or feeling like he was living a good life. And Jesus was like, you know what, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house. And at that moment, he's like, okay, yeah, no, this is better than than pushing everybody else down so that I can feel big. You get what I'm saying? I, I, I don't know if it's just so obvious it's not even worth saying, but <laughs> it just struck me as something really beautiful. Well, I do think in, in this story what stands out a lot is the clear transfer of like hate and anger and chastisement from the, you know, from the, um, from the hoi polloi from Zacchaeus to Jesus. I think that really highlights what you're talking about is like Jesus takes that on quite literally from the hate they had for Zacchaeus uh, in the story itself. It's transferred to him. And yet he just rejoices and like, it's like he doesn't even acknowledge that's going on. Right. He just, like Jesus rejoiced for the salvation of this soul. You know, he came to save the lost and gather the sinner. Um, I, yeah, I don't know if that's what you're getting at. Yeah, pretty much. And, and the other thing is the first reading from the book of wisdom was like, I can't remember exactly what it said, but it's basically saying like, God is so big. Oh, oh God, you are so big. We're all really <laughs> impressed with you down here. <laughs> but like the feeling I had, and I, again, I can't remember exactly the words, but there's two ways you can kind of feel about the fact that God is just gigantic. One is you can be scared. Like, oh my gosh, this guy, he can see everything that I do and everything that I'm thinking. And he's just, oh, he must be so sickened by me because he knows who I really am. And he's big enough. He can just squash me like a bug. I'm worthless. Or you can see God's bigness as uh, the greatest source of comfort because next to him, all your little offenses, all your little peccadilloes, great and small, you know, like whether you're sitting, you're standing in the backyard shooting hoops, just like running over and over and over in your head, like, I wish I didn't say that. I wish I didn't say that. Now, like every time I see this teacher, I'm going to feel ashamed of myself for being so mean and small of a person. And, And you can see like... Wait, God is so big that he doesn't change. Like he like whatever I did, he doesn't change the way he feels about me. And he's big enough that it's like he can put this behind him. You know, like he can take that. You know what I'm saying? And that I that I feel like is what's the dynamic in the Zacchaeus story. Is Jesus is just like, yeah, I can take all that stuff. I can take all of this hate that you feel towards yourself and that others feel towards you and just I'll take it. And Zacchaeus is just elated. You know, 
Yeah, I, uh, I mean, I definitely have agreed with everything said. I guess I've always, in my mind, I mean, there is like a real beauty um, to that story, but I guess I've always just seen it as like the joy that is present there as being like, for whatever reason, and I, I'm agreeing with everything you guys say, but it's like, it, they're just like a little bit more sober or something like that. Like that's how I've always pictured it in in my head. With uh, the Zacchaeus story. With the Zacchaeus story. Um, of just like a, uh, I don't know, I was even thinking when you were talking, um, just that Therese notion that God loves us so much that we make him weak. And so like when Jesus saw Zacchaeus in the tree, that like he himself was so moved, like that's just what he had to, like what he had to do. So I don't know, there's just like this, this like certain weight to it that's really good. It's not like a, a heaviness that I feel with it. Um, but it, it like, I don't know, for some reason, it like deepens the beauty of like the, just like the realization of what's, what's happening in it. Um, and I don't know why, like I've, I, you know, that I've always associated with that, um, with that scene, but, you know, uh, have, and I was going to say something else, but I can't, um, I'll think of it here in a second. Does that make sense? I think so. The thing that really struck me new in reading this story this year was, I feel like I've always underestimated how much people hated Zacchaeus. Hmm. And I've always underestimated like how dramatic this story really is and how this is exactly the kind of thing that would get Jesus killed. Hmm. You know, like what is this guy doing? You know, like this is clear as day that this guy has completely put himself out of, out of, communion with us you know he's a hack of the the roman empire which has conquered us and and made our lives difficult and it's basically like opposing the coming of the kingdom of god they would have accepted except expected a messiah to tear this guy a new one yeah well and he's a jew as well that's what i'm saying he's a complete traitor it's the worst yeah and and Jesus is just like, you know what, that's, that's who I came for. And I think there is something, I think you're like, you're on to something big time with that notion of like how big God is and what that can mean. Because I, I do feel like there's just like a lot of tension in that story. Like maybe even between Zacchaeus and Jesus, like just so much is happening. And I mean that in the good sense like the catholic sense of holding things you know in intention because i do think it's like full of joy and like real deal beauty but uh i don't know maybe like to relate it a little bit um i mean to something like from my life i I remember like when i was in uh when i was in champagne at school I was a biology major, so I was all in all these science classes and um, really, really liked that always. But there was always something with like the Newman Center there, the chapel on campus is very beautiful, but it's very big and it's like a very, um, 
at least when I was there, I think there was like six priests there. And I mean, there's stuff going on all the time. It's like a very big uh, just presence on campus. And I remember when I did Focus then a couple years later, just talking, I kind of like pieced this together um, over the years, but realizing that many people's experience and like very real um, like sentiment towards the church they were a part of was like kind of this intimate, like uh, gentle, like family feel, even in like the physical building of the church. And I remember I like when I first heard that, I didn't like it because I liked that, like my experience of the Newman Center, why I knew people personally and felt loved was like how big it was because it was like I would go there and I would take like I had a bunch of, you know, pretty openly like atheist professors that would kind of get their jabs in on like religious beliefs or whatever. And I remember like learning about that stuff and there was just like this almost subconscious feeling or subconscious realization that like the church is big enough, God is big enough to handle that. Because mm. um, I came from a town of nine, like my first biology lecture at UFI had more people than my hometown, <laughs> literally. Like they did, they did those like poll questions, you know, and I remember seeing the number and I was like, dang, that's more people that live in my hometown, like in this lecture <laughs> hall yeah. right here. And you, you know, it's a good science program and all this stuff, and it's a big thing that like you can get big time swept up into. And I remember kind of articulating that a couple years later. Uh, that was why I think I was so attracted to the Newman Center. It was like it was, it showed me that God was bigger than that. And so you have that, but then also at the same time, whether it be those experiences of people that had a very different type of experience at a Newman Center or a church or mm-hmm. whatever, or like elsewhere, I don't know. Um, but even Zacchaeus is like, God is so big, he's, he's able to be small and in like very specific encounters as well. Um, so that was big time rambling. Like, I don't even know, like what you were saying before, I don't know that it relates, but it was just trying to like, um, I was just thinking, I was like, man, that's just never how I've like, seen that scene with Zacchaeus like when I picture it it's just like different than how you guys were describing or at least how I heard you guys does that make sense oh yeah I mean because I my perspective or at least my experience with reading that story it's always super childish Mm -hmm. of like it almost seems like a Chesterton novel like or a Chesterton story where you have like guys up in trees and then he's giving away all of his money and like then it ends up in a party and everyone hates him, but he like, you know, comes into his home anyways. And, you know, it just kind of like a lot of childish, almost absurd elements to it. Uh, he gives away all like tons of his stuff. He must have been super rich because he gives away half. And then he says, I'll pay back four times everything that I've extorted. And so it's just like so many extremes that are present within the story and maybe it, it, it makes me think of my own, like, you spend time in trees when you're a kid. And so just any time that you have that element of someone up in a tree and I don't know. I, I mean, I will say this. the What you were talking about, Father, of the stuckness of sin and, like, realizing how nasty that was, I don't think I had the um, self-reflection to um, to really see to experience that when I was in high school or middle school 
But looking back now, what it my mind jumped to a story of when I got I got into big trouble just talking in class, being a, a class clown. And I remember I had already gotten like two detentions that year. And I got another detention from this teacher and he was our religion teacher. And I just came in and begged and begged and begged and begged because my parents, they had to sign this detention slip. And I was just begging and the guy would not bend. And he had, I had gotten him to bend a couple of times before. And he was like, no, look, this is it, man. Like I am not going to get you off the hook for this anymore. And I remember going into the bathroom and like just realizing how stuck I was. Like there's nothing I can do about this. I'm going to go home and get shellacked for this one right here. And there's nothing that I can do. Um, and just like kind of the terror of that, it's it's an awful feeling. Um, yeah. And then another time, just kind of a story along the similar a similar track, but it's fortuitous because today is Halloween. But I got a double detention one year on Halloween when I was much younger for cussing at some kid on the soccer field. <laughs> I cussed at him twice and then I apologized and the teacher was like, don't do it again. And I sure enough, I cussed at the same exact kid. And so I get a double detention for it. And I remember going home and showing it to my dad on Halloween and they wouldn't let me trick or treat. I was in like fifth grade. Oh man. And they made me sit at home and hand out candy to kids as they came by our front door. I remember doing vocabulary workbook and giving candy to kids um, as a fifth grader for getting a double detention and like just how miserable that was. So recognizing, yeah, the misery of sin, but also, well, not to push it too far. Um, yeah, but I guess, so the childish elements of that story come in because like what you said about the book of wisdom, father, it definitely struck hit home for me of like, you see the bigness of God and in a lot of ways, he he takes on, or at least shows Zacchaeus, like the smallness of sin. And it makes me think of, Baron gave a homily one time talking about, um, I can't remember what passage it is, but Jesus talks about like sin as being the chaff of the wheat that's just burnt up. Um, and it's kind of like lightly taken away. And, you know, looking at the enormity of God's mercy and to see that, like sin is consumed in the giant ocean of God's sin or of God's mercy of God's love. And I guess that's, that's kind of the element or the perspective through which I read the, the Zacchaeus story that you have a guy who's totally free because he's next to this monstrously like loving human being, divine being who is able to take on his shame and like literally, I don't know what you would call it. Maybe empathizing, for real taking on the sorrow, the sorrows and the sin of him. Um, yeah, that's also just rambling though. Yeah. Are we way off from where you started? Oh, it doesn't really matter. No, I think you're, you're on. It's just to me, um, what was I going to say? It's like, I just feel like there's two two roads you can go down, you know. And I think about myself in in that stage of like adolescence where you're the most insecure. You don't mm-hmm. know who you are, how you relate. Like, who are the cool kids? 
you know, I, I, maybe it's because of my own experience. I was like in between, I wasn't like, no one would follow me and think like, just because I was doing it, it was cool. You know, there were those kids and Matt's, you were probably one of them when you were, hey, you don't know that. Yeah, but you were <laughs> quarterback of the football team kind of guy, but I was not like, but I wasn't like one of those people that, you know, like the poor people who just have to suffer all through adolescence because you have a back brace or you, you have a lot of acne or like, you know, this stage of life where you just every little difference, that's all you notice. You're too fat. You're too skinny. You're too short. You're too tall. And you just want to be like average or, or whatever you want to be. You, you don't want to be noticed for anything. And, um, I remember like the kids in class who, who didn't care about getting in trouble or being disrespectful or like farting in the middle of class and getting kicked out, you know, like I didn't want to, I was somewhere where like, maybe it's cause I was raised and I did, I didn't want to take home any detention notes to my parents or I just remember a few times getting in trouble as a, as a really young kid, like in grade school, just feeling like this crushing shame. And it was, it wasn't like, Oh my gosh, in the grand scheme of things, like I'm, I didn't even have the vocabulary to, to think about like God or my myself or uh, it was just like, I don't want people to think I'm a bad kid or people, you know, whatever. But um, there's something, I just feel like there's something to that. Like you can take the route of shamelessness, you know, and just say, screw it. I guess I'm just a screw up kid and I'm going to, I'm going to screw up. You know, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I just thought, what if that were Zacchaeus? You know, like he had just kind of given up on himself. And and here was this Jesus who, by all accounts, should should be like, you know what? You are really worthless in everything that you've done. You've just betrayed who you are and where you came from, your family, your neighbors. You've gotten rich off the backs of of people who work hard for their families and and Jesus looks at him calls his name and it's just uh all of a sudden like you know I think about my confession when I was a teenager that was kind of like my moment where I thought like whoa the Catholic Church really has something here you know like the best kept secret is freedom and forgiveness and it was it, part of it that really struck me was like the priest, I've told this story before, but the priest kind of like asking these pointed questions about the Ten Commandments because it had been so long since my last confession. And like getting to parts where I thought like I did not, I didn't think of this as like having anything to do with God. Like these parts of my heart or desires or insecurities and shames. And the priest just drew it out of me. And I brought it and, and like just the act of presenting it to God in its in its fullness like yeah, I do that or I don't do that and I'm ashamed of it. And just hearing like, okay, well, all that will be erased and you can start again, you know? You're basically, yeah. you're an innocent, you're you're just like a baptized baby. You're free now. And yeah. that, that to me was just like, whoa, God is interested in those things and and has the power to lift them off of me. You know, like you just, I, in some ways, like I'd seen myself, like, what if that hadn't happened? I would have just like given up and been like, yeah, I guess this is just part of who I am. I, I live with a, I live with a 
you know, dark secret or multiple dark secrets that I don't really tell anybody or share myself with anybody or with God or, or whatever, you know, being known and loved in spite of the things that you hate about yourself. I I mean, I get, again, we're just like saying the obvious, this is, this is Christianity, but um, you have to have all of that. Like God is so big that he, he can handle it, but he's also like so humble and become small to be interested in the littlest thing. Like you said a mean thing to your teacher in sixth grade and it still haunts you. You're 44 years old and you're still thinking about this. Well, God can take that. He cares about it. You know, you get what I'm saying? I, I think I do now. And I'm sorry. Cause I don't think I did at first. Um, but that actually helps a lot. And that is a very good point. Cause I think this is just me kind of spitting this out now. Like what I, even in this Zakia story, what I was thinking around was like, the, the, okay, like the people that take that road or have that encounter with Jesus, that he, that he can be and is a shame bearer, you know, for, for you, whatever it is. And that's a haunting, like, example to use of like this thing I said to my teacher in sixth grade like still haunts me today when I'm in my 40s like he can take that um and I guess like the maybe what I was thinking around before was just the notion of like the spiritual versus like the temporal um realities of the impacts of sin and it was like that at least what you were articulating is like, I know because it's a real experience. Like when you have met someone or encounter someone, at least when I do, that is like truly living in freedom because they've let that, let God take those away from him, whatever it may be. Then like that is what allows like the here and now to be sanctified. And I don't know even if that makes sense. Because I, I was even thinking of like, I've thought before, I've never really like talked about this much, but it's like, how would the story of like the prodigal son finish? Like, what is that? And I know it's a, it's a parable, but like, what would that story look like, like five years from after or whatever? Because like that way of living, like how the son lived, like had impacts on his, on the rest of his life. You know, even though he's like living kind of under his father's standard now in, in real freedom. But like, what did that do to his health? What did that do to his body? Like, how does that impact the rest of his life? And the thought is like, but he knows who he belongs to now. And that like that experience of joy is so much deeper and frankly looks so much different than like a, like just bouncing off the walls joy. Um, so, like, what I just drew there makes sense to me, but I'm pretty sure, like, I didn't explain it well. Does that, like, I, parallel I I make sense? You're saying, where yeah. you're saying you're describing a joy that's not, like, necessarily this exterior manifestation of someone who is just, like, running around very happy. Yeah, yeah. You're talking about, like, a deep interior joy. Right. That may not even be visible to that's, the... That's, like, fully, like, fully present to the reality of the here and now. Right. Because that's, that's the whole, like, shame bearer. Um, image that I actually think is more powerful is like I have seen 
and in some ways, like in my own life, have taken that route like of shamelessness. I, I like that analogy and that image of like the fork in the road of what you can take. But then it's like, so if you, you know, have the grace to, the grace is there, but like if you take the, the way of letting Jesus bear your shame, you know, the best kept secret of confession and all the stuff that we talk about, um, like what does your life look like then, you know, two years after that and five years after that and 10 years after that? And it is, you know, you can talk about it in the language of like this, this ongoing sanctification and transformation, which is all very real, but I don't know, like there, that's, that's the beauty for me is that like the temporal like effects of that sin and it sounds counterintuitive, but they don't go away. Like they're not just removed, but they themselves have to be sanctified so we can have this instant peace like this instant experience and freedom in the sacrament of confession and like via that grace he's actually going to transform our humanity right does that connor or yeah anybody dude that sounds like you have like a divinized someone who realizes they're an adopted son Mm -hmm. entering into the mess of the temporal of the temporality the temporal effects of sin mm-hmm. are now being stepped into by a different person. Right. Like this person now knows who they are. Mm-hmm. And the effects of sin are still the same. But now you have grace pervading it through this person who realizes they're an adopted son slash daughter. Yeah. Like one of my good friends um, from like before seminary was, he's, uh, you know, a little bit older than me. And he was a recovering like big time addict, drugs and alcohol, kind of the whole gambit. And he has probably one of the most profound spiritual lives of like anyone I've been around before. But he would talk openly about that. It's like for the rest of his life. And this guy is a saint, man, like my hero as far as the spiritual life. And uh, and like deeply joyful, deeply happy and transformed and at peace with himself and with God and all this cool stuff. But he realizes like like one thing could like send him off the deep end from his past with addiction and that you know it's like mm. like that is still present to him every second of the day because of how he lived his life for that decade of his 20s yeah. and it was like that like to be around him was like transforming in itself because it's so real yeah, and that's why it's not a self-help program. It's a person, you know, like yeah. Zacchaeus. Why Why my reaction after that experience in confession was like, it wasn't an immediate, to your point, it wasn't an immediate like 180 turn. I didn't even have the resources to know like, how do you pray? How do you live a spiritual life or, or anything like that? But there was, a, there was a sense of like the cause of that, experience was the catholic church and uh the person of christ was the uh was the efficient cause you know it was like that that was somehow in me like just an instinct like okay well if you if ever i am again feeling lost or feeling in chains i will go have them removed by christ and he is found in the church and it was like this 
you know, that drew me, what does a prodigal son look like five years later? You know, who knows? Maybe like, yeah, that, sure. that old life does still call to him or, you know, yeah, I think realistically that that is true. Like he, he's not going to be, it doesn't make you perfect all of a sudden. Right. Uh, but it does make you deeply like what I have seen, at least in the people I've been around, like the level of gratitude is always striking. Yeah. Because that is what like my that was probably the biggest takeaway from my buddy is like he could look back on those years and like I'm sure like want to have him back so bad he can't stand it. But at the same time, like he's thankful for him because they've led him to where he is right now. Mm-hmm. And like that is a that's a paradox like to me yeah. anyway. And there's something particularly pointed about like his story an addict who's living with the knowledge that at any moment like one thing could spill him back over into the edge. Mm-hmm. And so you're living in this you know seeming state of constantly being saved. Like right now, I the, one thing could tip me over. Yeah. And you're living in the fact that you're not. Mm-hmm. And I know that's not my doing. So it does. It leads to gratitude. Hmm. Like being saved. Actively, I'm being saved. I was blind, but now I see. Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. Good girl.